Hello everyone, this is Saqib and uh, another episode of Tennis with an Accent awaits you. Uh, and the guest is Mark Pecci. Uh, really honored to sp- uh, speaking with him. Uh, he's ace commentator, former player and former coach. So I'm sure there's a, a lot of tennis to be talked today. Welcome, Mark. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, a lot of tennis, obviously a lot of history made at the weekend in uh, in Rotterdam, and uh, yeah, it's just I mean across the board, it's been a, it's been a terrific start to the season. None more so than for for Roger, obviously, but um, yeah, tennis is looking very healthy right now. Uh, sure, I was gonna have Roger a little later in my you know in my question book, but let's uh, you know start with him. So I know enough hasn't been spoken about the guy like so. This achievement, where does this rank? And uh, is world number one a bigger achievement sometimes than, you know, most fans give credit to? Because Federer was world number one for the longest of times. And now he's back as a 36-year-old. So where does this rank in his achievements? And how do you see uh, his rest of the year? Well, I think from the from the rest of the year right now, outside of the clay, you know, when he, when he steps onto the court with obviously the injury struggles that the others are still, uh, you know, coming back from, you know, you, you have to say that he's the favourite. And one of the things Rogers always loved to be in his career is the big favourite. I remember one of the early years when he was in Australia um, as the top seed, that was exactly his quote. He said, I like I like being, you know, the big favourite coming in. I like everyone else looking to me, you know, having to beat me. He's, he's been very comfortable with that pressure on his shoulders um, at all times. But I think, I think the world number one is is extra special, I think, because, you know, that's the culmination of just an amazing 12 months, really. And, I, you know, that's not just coming back from an injury and having, you know, one great tournament and, and all of that. I mean, it's the fact that he's managed to maintain that. I mean, his strike rate, what, nine titles in 14 events that he's played since coming back? I mean, that is just off the charts, isn't it? I mean, to be, you know, everyone says, well, he's managed his schedule well. You know, he's not playing so much, but you don't have to play that much when you win as often as that. You know, there's not many people that could shrink their schedule down to that kind of level and still walk away with nine titles. And uh, obviously, you know, an uh, uh, athlete of uh, Federer's magnitude, you know, with all the social commentary, you cannot escape comparisons. Uh, and a lot of time people say he's playing better than before and, you know, whatnot. But uh, is managing the body a challenge, even though if he's injury-free at 36 years old and, you know, with 14, 1,500 matches under the belt, how hard it is just, you know, come out week in, week out and keep the same uh, keep the same momentum, uh, same mind tennis-wise? Because we don't talk about these things. Uh, how different is the Federer of 2007 to the Federer of today in this regards? You know, uh, of course, no injuries to keep in mind. Yeah, it's a great question to keep it. I'm... Listen, I think there's a lot that goes into that. I think first and foremost, it's Roger's desire. Um, you know, all, all achievement is is the culmination of a great desire at the end of the day to continue to pushing yourself away from the cameras, the hard work that he puts in that we don't see, um, to motivate yourself to do that. Yes, he loves playing in front of full stadiums and he fills the stadium better than anyone. Um but at the same time, you've still got to go and do the work in an empty stadium or in an empty gym that allows you the ability to play as well as he does, um, you know, in Rotterdam. And as amazing as it and his shot making is and, and the way that he plays the game, as crucial is to be in position to defend. And he uh, certainly to the uneducated eye doesn't look as though he's lost half a step. There was a lovely interview with Pierre Pagnini with Chris Clary from the New York Times last year where, 
it was not full disclosure. And basically, Pierre was saying, well, it's up to you to decide whether you think there's things that have changed or haven't changed in Roger's movement. I, I mean, like I said, to, to me, it doesn't look as though he has changed in that department almost at all. And that is just a phenomenal compliment to Pierre, to Daniel Troxler, who obviously works on the road with him. And But as I say, you go back to Roger, his, his desire to put in the work to be able to do that at this age with all the material wealth that he has, the titles that he has, the legacy that he's already got, his unconditional love for the sport is inspirational to all of us. You know, if we, if we, you know, this is just one aspect of his life that he has unconditional love for him. If we could all just take that and put it into our lives, into, into an area, just how fulfilled we could be. So I think there's a lot to learn from Roger. We can't be like Roger on the court, but we certainly can take a lot of his attributes off the court and, and, and use those wisely. No, he's indeed been, uh, you know, uh, very much of a visionary in, you know, scheduling and how he takes care of his body. And I'm sure uh, this is uh, this is a template that can be used by fellow players, you know, if uh, people are already not paying attention. You said something interesting about, you know, how he sells tickets. And it's no secret he's been tennis's golden goose for a while. Uh, and now, obviously, you know, we don't know when the end is, but we are nearer to the end than ever. Uh, if he has one or two years left. Uh, so are you okay with what went on in Australian Open and uh, maybe we we sometimes, you know, over-magnify these things? Most tournaments are, you know, uh, lucky to have him and they're dictating some sort of a scheduling uh, around him. You think that's part of the industry? It's always been like that? Or are we just, you know, at, at, at an era when every small thing needs to be scrutinized? I'm referring to the, you know, night matches and, you know, the treatment Federer gets. And Roddick was... Uh, on Twitter during that time. And he said, let's not pretend even for a second that this is a business. So your thoughts on the whole uh, treatment that Federer gets these days? Yeah, listen, I think that you have to say that he has earned that right. And the tournament has also, with the money that it puts in, especially the Australian Open, which arguably for me is the the most uh, fan-friendly event that that I've been to in, in recent years, um, in terms of the majors, I know Indian Wells will certainly lay claim to to that particular title on the ATP Tour. Um, you know, he's earned that right, and the tournaments have earned the right to put him in prime time. You know, the marquee times. It is a business. Of course, Andy Roddick's right. It is a sport, but it is an entertainment, and it is about getting as many eyeballs on your event, as many column inches as you can, as many podcasts as you can, as many hours people are watching this, you know, and, and it's a crowded marketplace. And and Roger and particularly Rafa, um, it goes without saying on the men's side, obviously on the ladies' side, you've got other great superstars in Serena, you've got Venus, you've got a great story with Caroline Wozniacki this year. But having eyeballs on your event um, is is what it's all about, and having visibility is what it's all about. And so, Roger, for me, it's not a it's not an issue at all. If you if 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 anyone has a problem with that, and if it's a player that has a problem with that, then they need to go out and achieve what he has before they can start worrying about whether they've got a night match or not. Fair enough. And then uh, you know, Federer's number one, and we already talked about you know uh, what a great achievement this is. And uh, last year, his uh, arch rival Nadal reached number one. So we are living in this era of, you know, this great consistency by uh, the top three and even Murray. Uh, so I know we are not in the prophecy business, but uh, Nadal is number one last year. Now Federer is number one. So is there a likelihood that uh, Djokovic returns to number one before a new number one is crowned uh, with the current state of the men's game? Or uh, how do you take stock into those happenings? 
Well, the one thing that you know as well as I do, Skeev, that is that these great champions have a competitive streak and then that that is burns as brightly as lava running down the side of a volcano after it's erupted. I mean, this, you know, there is genuine heat in that competitiveness that they bring to a tennis court, which is why they are great champions. They hate to lose uh, more than they a lot of the time love to win. Um, and... You know, from that perspective, Novak seeing and Andy seeing what these guys have achieved, if their bodies allow them to get back to peak physical conditioning, which is obviously going to be crucial that that is what happens for them, then I don't see why there's any reason that they can't um, also do what Roger uh, and Rafa have done. I think that they've they've shown the way. Um, they've set the, the bar at a level which is attainable for both Novak and Andy. Um and so I, I do expect a strong reaction from both of them. But obviously the caveat in there is can they get themselves back to the physical sort of conditioning that they need to be to be able to compete? Because without that, you're not going it doesn't matter how good you how how good your mind is, if your physical conditioning isn't where it needs to be, the game's too difficult. You know, the margins are too small. Talk about it a lot about how, you know, Roger, you know, his career points one throughout the entirety of his career is 54%. You know, that's it. And, you know, we think of his dominance on a tennis court, and yet he's only won 54% of the total points that he's ever played in professional tennis. And when he's won, a, he's won three majors in a year, that total goes to mm. 56%. 56% of total points won in that year. So the margins are so small. So if you're off from a physical standpoint, you're going to find it very difficult to get back to uh, to world number one. But the inspiration is there for those guys to definitely try and emulate what Roger and Rafa have done recently. And of course, uh, you know, most of us, uh, you know, who are paying attention know that you are, uh, Andy Murray is a former charge of yours. Uh, so let's talk about his comeback. Uh, of course, you know the man well. So, uh, and this is a tough injury to come back from. Your thoughts on, you know, uh, how he's going to manage his, uh, you know, post-injury career. Uh, we know Murray's an utmost professional. Uh, just give some personal insight on his road back, if you are in touch with him or how does this work for him? I, I haven't spoken to Andy at all about his hip situation. Um, I know nothing about it. I'm not going to comment on, you know, the what, what, what it is, what what the rehab's supposed to look like, what the potential is for him to come back and play at near 100%. But obviously that's Andy's goal. He's taken all the advice that he could possibly have in terms of how he's gone about the rehab to start with, obviously the surgery that he's now had in Melbourne. Um, and all I know about Andy is is that he is a guy that... Uh, in fact, I use, this, I use this quote yesterday from the great Dylan Thomas poem... Um, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. I use that for Roger. Actually, I was saying is that is has there been a better athlete um, at this stage of his career when everyone feels as though he's in his dying embers of his career, and yet he's still just just fighting farther time harder than anyone has, and and still being as successful. I was thinking about a quote because of obviously. Kipling's quote over centre court from the poem It and mm-hmm. how synonymous that was with Rogers, obviously, you know, first ever major title and Wimbledon and, and, and Federer and everything else. But it, it, it's applicable to Andy as well. There is no way that from what I know about Andy as a person that he will want to go out of tennis, you know, this way. If there is a way to get himself back to playing 
and competing at the level that he will he wants to he will find it but i it is well well above my pay grade in terms of the the hip situation and the rehab situation so I, i'm going to plead ignorance on that one uh no fair enough and uh going back to your association with murray you know earlier in his career uh, has the man surprised you has he overachieved has he underachieved uh, how do, how does someone like you take stock of his his great run of course he's kept company with three of the best players probably of all time so sometimes he doesn't get his fair share and some people say you know he doesn't belong there so how do you make the balancing act of someone who's worked with andy murray knows him really well uh, if you look back at the graph that he's uh, pre- you know he's presented in his tennis career well he was for me he was always special you know i mean i i knew andy a little bit when i worked at the lta uh, men's performance uh, caught up with him a few times watched him play a futures at edinburgh when he was about 16 and i just thought wow this kid's got so much time on the ball on a fast indoor court it's like you you can't coach that um plus the competitive fire he played a doubles later in the afternoon i think there was a there was a frame that didn't make it through the match and i looked again thinking well you know he's 16 he's playing doubles and that hurt the fact that he lost that game that badly that he was willing to break the racket so i saw i saw all the ingredients of a great player you know um it's always hard to say that they're going to be a world number 1 it's always hard to say that they're going to be you know a grand slam champion because the respect you have for all those other players in that sort of group whether it ended up being one of the greatest series of all time and we weren't aware of that at the time but i knew he was going to be a great player there was no doubt in my mind he was just he was something a little bit special in fact when i worked with him when we went to aptos in california the great challenger that they have there uh, which he ended up winning after about the second match there i just said to him wow i see i see genius in your game i mean there were shots that he was hitting that i, I don't even think i would have even dreamt of and let alone executed um so he was always he was always great and i think the fact that he has managed to achieve what he has in terms of uh the two olympic golds the three majors the davis cup um in an era that was congested with greatness um is a tribute to him in terms of his uh willingness to face adversity and and become a better player it's a yin and a yang situation here because do you know what he's he's a he's probably a better player well I won't say probably he's a better player than he would have been without those other three great players and obviously you got to throw Stan a little bit into that mix as well um but having said that he possibly could have won more majors if they weren't around so um it, he's the best player that he could possibly have ever been because of the rivals around him it it is it is conceivable that he could have won more majors had they not been around okay so let's uh, do a segue into you know uh, what you just said uh, for commentary i think uh, so, some of you guys like into rob konig nick lester you're one of them uh, if there's a big four of in the english commentary uh, for tennis i think you guys you know will be the nominees uh, and uh, and a lot of fans I, i think these days are informed and uh, when i spoke to lester last year he said something very you know that stayed with me he says the tv commentator the idea is to add to the picture because the audience is already seeing the action unfold and uh, you also do it you know very subtly and uh, you offer insights so as a commentator do you bring a coach's mindset into the box or is that something natural when you're describing or breaking a point uh, how does that work i'll tell you what i bring into a commentary box is a massive sense of insecurity when i uh, i 
actually failed my English O-level. I don't know if I've ever said that before, but I actually failed my English O-level here in the UK um, and passed it the second time. And it is actually something that stuck with me, uh, obviously not while I was playing tennis particularly, but when I became uh, interested in potentially doing commentary, I've spent an entire career uh, reading books, um, trying to trying to increase my vocabulary, trying to become a better commentator through descriptive methods. Uh, because I've, I've always been a bit insecure in that regard, because I thought, well, if you can fail an English O level, and suddenly now you've got to go and describe uh, action to people who are listening at home, you know, you've got to up your game. You've got to go and be better than you ever were before. So. That is one thing I do bring into a commentary box every single time is a bit of insecurity. And I hope that that actually makes me a better commentator because I never get complacent that what I'm going to say is going to always be good enough. So um, I think that, that that's been an important part of my own personal sort of development and um, aspect in terms in terms of the actual sort of fundamentals of um of tennis I, i've tried to learn from a lot of people who i i respect massively um the one person i will say um i i think jim courier is outstanding um i've been very fortunate to work with jim at the french open for itv um his takes on tennis are tremendous his uh, use of the english language is also something that i aspire to um and I think that, you know, again, there's other people that certainly I've looked around and, and, and wanted to try and try and take parts of theirs. You have to have your own style. You have to have something you're uncomfortable with. The, the tennis commentary is too instinctive at times in the big moments. You know, you can't, you can't be too formulaic. You can't, you can't really preset for what's going to happen. You've got to kind of feel the moment. So all you can do is sort of prepare best for those moments to make sure that you hopefully can convey the emotion and the meaning to people on the technical side. On the, I, I've been, I've been privileged to try and help my daughters from scratch. They never, you know, from, from day zero, I've learned a lot uh, trying to coach them technically. Uh, um, I've been fortunate enough to spend a bit of time with a guy, Esteban Carril in Spain, who has also kept me very current. Um, and I've taken a lot from him. So also appreciate his time in terms of making sure that I kind of understand uh, uh, parts about the game. And then the other aspect is Hawkeye. You know, there's so much great data out there nowadays and we get fortunate enough at a number of the tournaments to be able to sit with these guys and like drill for data and try and, you know, try and try and show the viewers that this is, as Robin Williams once famously said, a game of chess played at 90 miles an hour. And even though it looks like it's completely instinctive what's going on and everything else, there's a there's a genuine pattern to what these people are doing and and highlight any weaknesses you can you know why why you know you look at Dimitrov's second serve I know he was sick yesterday but you know a lot of the time his back his front foot's landing on the baseline or behind the baseline you look at Rogers you know positioning on the second serve and he's a good half a meter inside you know that baseline you know just just trying to pick up the nuances that that perhaps if you're just watching the tennis ball go back and forth is is something that's very important I think to to give that as you say, additional to to the viewers, because actually at the end of the day, how many matches they've won, what tournaments they've won, where they come from, 
99% of our viewers go on Google and they get it within one second. You know, um, so our job actually isn't to regurgitate, whereas in the past, maybe when that information wasn't as freely available, it, it was a big part of it. For me, the, the much bigger part of tennis commentary now is is to be able to hopefully show people why somebody's winning and why somebody's losing. So when you say watch a guy like Dimitrov going through the motions, of course, yesterday, you know, he came into the match with some sort of a, of an illness. But uh, does a commentator in you sometimes think like a coach? that what he could be doing differently because uh, he's a man full of talent and a lot of unfulfilled talent still. So as a coach's point of view, if you're uh, viewing Dimitro's performance in general, uh, uh, how would you paint that picture? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a little unfair on a lot of these guys that they get obviously compared with, you know, some of the greatest players of all time. And then, you know, but that is unfortunately the burden they bear. Um, I'm not going to fall too sorry for them they are all multi-millionaires who are not going to have to worry too much about you know where their next meal is coming from and what have you but um obviously it's very difficult to do what roger does you know roger's taking the ball on average you know inside the baseline um on his average rally contact point that is incredibly difficult to do does it look you know like dimitrov you know should be inside the baseline doing the same thing when we know on a hard court he's half a meter behind the baseline playing and against most people that's good enough but roger can rush you from being inside the baseline so yeah absolutely when i sit there and i watch i i you 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 put your coaching hat on and say well this could be better and this is something that he needs to do but you've also got to understand and, and you, that it's very difficult to do what somebody like Roger does. And, you know, there's not enough hours in the day and it's possibly not even possible for other players to be able to play the way that he does. He is unique and we will miss him because of it. Because, you know, I, I you know, I, I always want to put Rafa in here because I always feel like his uniqueness is, is also something that we will, will be a massive void when, when he goes. And people will always say, the sport will continue and the sport will continue. There is, there is no doubt about it, but there will be a period. And I feel like you look back at some other sports and take our, um, and take a look at that. Look at boxing when Tyson retired, you know, it's not quite ever had the same gravitas. You look at Tiger in his prime and the little chips, at the masters off the edge of K2 side of a cliff and you know, uh, you look at Michael Michael Johnson, who I admire massively. Uh, by the way, I mean, you talk, talk about commentary, taking your inspiration from people. I mean, that guy. When I listen to him um, on the BBC in, in the UK doing the athletics, he is in a class of his own. Um, and he, you know, not just because of his triumphs, but because of his his ability to convey. Um, what what he sees and the moment and everything else is is almost second to none in my opinion but i loved watching the 400 meters i loved running the 400 meters as a kid and i watched his style and it was completely unique and you know it's you know for a long time before wayne vanderkirk came through the 400 had lost a little bit of its its gravitas so these 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 people that we are witnessing at the moment the two of them particularly and roger and rafa are gonna are gonna be very hard to to replace for a while now, again, uh, sticking with just Dimitro as an example or even bring uh, Dominic Team, you know, because a lot of time his shot selection, at least at our fan level, is a question. Now, someone like you, an ace commentator in the box, mm-hmm. and when they have these new coaching arrangements, uh, in this case, of course, uh, Danny has been there for a while. So do you st- uh, start noticing uh, some of the coaches' uh, intent uh, in the players' game? Because a lot of these players have these uh, instinctive uh, 
tendencies, which I'm sure are hard to let go, even though, say, like Dimitrov yesterday coming out, firing in the first few games, hugging the baseline. And then as the match slipped, you again see him being pushed around. So uh, are, are those patterns sometimes you pay attention while uh, watching a match? and uh, Or do you wait for something like that to magnify, say, over over a month's time or a, or a half a year's time? No, I think those those are the sort of things that, he, that happen in the match. I mean, you know, that you can get the data from Hawkeye where, you know, forehand average speed has dropped off like three, four miles an hour. Suddenly the other opponent has, you know, an extra split second of time on the ball. The ball isn't quite as deep and, and therefore that that's why the match is shifting around. You can see court positioning from players. You know, they're suddenly a meter further back in the third set of a match or in the fourth set of the match where maybe they're tiring in a, in a best of five. Um and you'll be able to see um, you'll you'll be able to see that sort of happening. I mean, this is off the top of my head, but the last four meetings that Rogers had with Rafa, I think he's made nineteen out of twenty five first serves on break points. You know, down. I mean, that is just a ridiculously high number. You know, that's obviously going to contribute to your sort of success. So um, you you see things, and you and you definitely try and highlight things that are changing. And I think that, you know, I think it's probably a little unfair to to look too much at Grigor yesterday because he was clearly unwell. Um, but yeah, you're right. You can say this is what they need to do, but to actually stay up on the baseline against somebody like Roger and hit over your backhand that Grigor probably needs to do more. He's a guy that slices his backhand 50% of the time on a hard court in general. Um, suddenly that's not going to work as well against Roger. So you've now got to go to maybe, uh, you know, 30% of the time you can only slice it. Suddenly you've got to change your game. You've got to change your mindset. You've got to change your game. That is not easy to do. For someone like Roger, he generally doesn't have to change his game against these these players. So, um, mm. you know, so it does make it a lot easier. You know, look at look at... Look at Rafa. The only person, well, okay, the four losses to Roger. Now he's obviously going. He's obviously having to think about things for the probably the first time. But apart from that, it was Novak. Novak was the only guy that could really get to Rafa to make Rafa change his games. Their their game styles is actually simpler for them because they're that good. They don't have to change anything. Uh, one more thing on the coaching before we move uh, a further segue into your playing playing days and uh, you know your career. Uh, uh, you, you think at this level, uh, changes uh, take longer to implement because you coached a top player and say, you know, like a Marin Cilic and Jonas Bjorkman example, uh, when a guy comes in and takes a top player, uh, what is the time frame these coaches giving them uh, to produce results? Because a year is a pretty short time and the training blocks are a few months here and there and then it's all action. How, how does a top association like that work? I'll just uh, share with our audience here. Uh, Say a guy comes in like Galo Blanco is here with the Dominic team. What are the changes these guys can make and what time frame they give themselves and what's the report card when it's all measured? I know it's a broad question. Yeah, it's a broad question. I think, you know, again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of aspects to that question as well. I mean, coming in early on, you're not going to make any technical changes, obviously, but you can obviously make strategic changes. You know, if you see somebody perhaps, not getting their forehand into players the first shot after their serve, but they've got a very dominant forehand. That is something that obviously you could potentially change pretty quickly if you're looking at an opponent who perhaps is trying to change direction a little bit too often um, and not going back cross court. You know, they feel the need to change direction all right, that you can obviously work a little bit 
uh, on just patterns of play using the middle of the court is, you know, the return up the middle is obviously an important play as well, not maybe used as much by people. So accuracy on serve obviously is a big one that will come down to good ball toss. You can see that pretty quickly in, you know, with a player. So um, I think coming in, you know, a lot of it is about self-esteem as well. I think that is one of the most important things as a coach is to make sure that you don't, you don't create, we want, you know, the, one of the easiest things to do in coaching is to create a problem by saying, yeah, you're not hitting your backhand that well. Uh, and we're going to work on it because immediately in a player's mind, they go, Oh, they don't think my backhand's very good. So even though you're, objective is to get their backhand better and yeah it hasn't been working well you've really got to find ways and means of not making it an even bigger issue in their head um you know while while you're coaching them so i think i think that is one of the biggest things is always just trying to remain very positive but in terms of technical changes and things like that you can i think you can always improve things i think that a year a year is a year is a good gauge. I think it, you've got enough time to do work on the road, uh, some off periods as well to improve a player's game. I think, I think that you know, I think that is a good gauge. If you're not, if you haven't improved something at this level with the talent that you've been given after a year, then obviously there would be probably question marks. But I, th- I, I think within a under a year would be difficult. You're you're managing a lot of stuff, a player's ranking, confidence potential couple of injuries who knows so i think a year is a fair is a fair time frame of course uh, before commentary uh, was coaching and we already spoke about that uh, and you look back at your tennis life uh, now i coached the women's tour as well yeah so a couple of years on the women's tour when i first stopped i coached a croatian girl sylvia talaya um and tina piznik from slovenia which i absolutely loved um it's a great challenge straight off the tour. I learned, wow, that was a learning curve as well. Just from a playing perspective, thinking you know what you think from playing to suddenly coaching, it was a, uh, it was a great, it was a great time. They both did pretty well. Uh, Sylvia won a couple of titles, got to top twenty in the world, and from ninety. But I think the most important thing again, when you go back to my now lifestyle with commentary, it taught me, it taught me a lot about looking at players and how they play and 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 then looking at them six months later to see what was going on and and that was why I say a year it took when I started with Sylvia she probably hit five minutes of volleys in a in a warm-up uh, that was it and I was like well I think you're going to need to learn a volley a little bit better than that these girls are so good from the back of the court and it took me a year um, from Miami um, to the Gold Coast, where I still to this day is one of those sort of seminal moments that you you have in your life. And if you've been in sort of a sport that you've been working on for a long time, she was playing Conchita Martinez in the final of uh, the Gold Coast tournament. And uh, she was 4-3 up in the third break point and then sort of came in this like crisp cross-court volley for a winner. And I was like, wow, that took a year to get her to feel confident enough to make that move at that particular point in the third set. And they're, they're the moments that sit with you that you just think all the hours, all the effort, everything was worthwhile for that one shot. And uh, yeah, most of the viewers probably know or don't know that you have a win over Pat Rafter. So live back through your playing days. Uh, what was your inspiration and were you a servant volleyer? And uh, uh, how do you look back at your play, you know, playing tennis career? 
Yeah, so yeah, my playing days, I started with a wood racket, gut, full gut. Um, we used to sort of rough up the grip on the top of the, the, the net where the metal is, the metal sort of wire, just to, it, when it was too slippery. We didn't have any overgrips. It was, it was the old school way, which was good. And then I had my first ever sort of proper racket, which was a Dunlop Max 200G. Um, and yeah, my, my style was serve and volley, but I mean, mainly because it was a product of my environment. We did, we had lots of grass courts in my club. We did have shale somewhat surprisingly at the Connell Club, which was a bit of a benefit, but I used to hit on polished wood at the Queen's Clubs. Uh, I, and obviously my tournament days in the UK, most of them were on grass courts over the summer and not particularly great grass courts either where the ball bounced around your ankle. So it, you, you were a real premium to try and not allow that ball to bounce. So you would try and volley it at every kind of uh, sort of stage. And, and I think actually, to be honest, it was a little bit of a detriment to me. I had a good second serve professionally, but I didn't have a very good first serve, I didn't think, uh, professionally. I, whether it was lack of pace, lack of accuracy, um, and, and I think serving and volleying behind that made life very difficult, actually, and possibly would have been, well, would have been better to obviously have a better first serve, but maybe I should have played a little bit more for the back of the court um, after my first serve than always serving and volleying, to be honest. You know how the game has changed, and it's a standard question that I keep throwing at my guests, but uh, try to get, you know, a lot of time varied answers. So you mentioned McEnroe and, you know, a generation, you know, that followed him, including, you know, players like yourself. Uh, how would McEnroe be playing with, say, a Babolat racket or, you know, polyester strings? How would his game be in today's world? Just a very hypothetical uh, way of looking um, at it. He would make he would evolve he would he would make the changes needed to be at the top of the game. Um, I don't think he would get away with serving and volleying as much as he did. Obviously, um, I think the spin on the ball from the, the strings in particular, and obviously the 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 racket size, you know, the head of the racket changed. You know, it's a much bigger face, so you can get up the back of the ball a lot quicker and not mistime the ball. So the spin on the ball makes it so much more harder to defend. So, but you know. People like John are just such great champions that no matter if he couldn't have served and volleyed as much as he would have liked, um, he he would have made the adjustment with the Babalat rackets. He would have been, you know, he would have he would have managed beating people from the back of the court. Before we, uh, you know, end this great chat, uh, the common theme for the last year and a half in in the men's game, especially, has been injuries. Uh, you think this is a coincidence, or this is are we reaching a point where something has to be done? Or are we taking notice because more top players are injured? Otherwise, if you know, you know, lower ranked players are injured, you know, the show goes on. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, what are the factors in your in, in your view that are causing uh, this much injured state that we have in the men's game? Well, I think a little bit of it is a lot of the guys used to retire, you know, between twenty eight and thirty. So we're entering a slightly different and, and new period of of tennis that the these older players are able to continue to play so obviously you would feel as though there's more chance of injuries coming there's more wear and tear there's more miles on the clock in terms of their bodies so to me it's not the greatest surprise that we're having more injuries because players are playing longer again the problem that you've got is you've got somebody like Roger at the top who you know apart from the back injury that he's had um you know seems to be almost you know sort of injury free a lot of the time but that you know, I think we need to remember is not the norm. So from my perspective, I think we've just been incredibly unlucky the where they all group together these injuries. But it isn't a surprise that we've got more injuries because of the players being older. 
I mean, if you look back at Johnny Mack and Stefan Edberg and, and you look at the number of singles and doubles those guys were playing back then. And let's not forget they were playing best of five finals in a lot of these tournaments as well that are now only best of three. So if you look at, I mean, Boris one year, didn't he? He won in Australia, he won in Japan, and then he won Paris indoors in three weeks in back to back. And I, th- and I think only one of those finals was best of three. The rest were best of five. I mean, they were playing a lot of tennis and arguably dynamically moving forward all the time, serving and volleying takes an awful lot out of you. Um, Even if you're serving and volleying, you miss your first serve, you're still going to take four steps into the court before you realize you've missed it. Whereas if you're serving and staying back, you don't move as far. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not the person that is subscribing to the fact that, you know, it is so significantly different now uh, than it, than it was back then i possibly am wrong i'm possibly seeing it through you know different colored glasses to other people but you know the average rally length you can't get away from it is still four to five shots on the men's sides for these top 10 players so you know i i I think that it's because they're playing a bit longer there's obviously an argument to say the strings are putting a little bit more stress on the wrists um but apart from that i just think it's it, it, it's you know they're actually playing in terms of singles and no you know and doubles combined probably less matches than John McEnroe was playing and, and, and Stefan and stuff which is also on the flip side of that contributing to why they're potentially playing longer as well you know some of those guys are playing singles and doubles and then obviously there's a bit more of a, a burnout factor as well going to be attached to that right, so that's pretty insightful Mark I'm, I'm sure you know I'm, uh, I you know ran my uh, time clock over because we said it's going to be half an hour, but you know, uh, as usual, I was greedy to get more out of you. Uh, hopefully, the audience enjoys uh, this chat. I hope you got what you want. I hope that file saved for your sake. <laughs> no, I, I got plenty, and hopefully, you know, uh, you enjoyed it as well. And maybe you know we can have you again later in the year. No problem, anytime. Just, just you know, you've got my contact details and everything else. Not a problem at all. I enjoyed it. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for you know joining us here in tennis with an accent, and uh, it was a pleasure. <laughs>